This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. During this pandemic, we wanted data. The danger we faced was invisible. The things we were being told to do to combat it were unprecedented. How many cases are there today? What are the chances my mother will catch it? What's the risk she'll die? How do I know that this new law the government has just passed will make any difference? Statisticians and epidemiologists have tried to answer these questions, and the answers they gave often provoked fury and disbelief. That's often down to something called optimism bias, which we can talk about later. Two of those statisticians, Sir David Spiegelhalter and Anthony Masters, have just published a book, COVID by Numbers, Making Sense of the Pandemic with Data. Sir David joins me today to talk about that book. Welcome to The Bunker, David. Oh, thanks for having me. It's partly, I think, thanks to Twitter that ordinary people without any stats training have access to vast amounts of data, which is something quite unprecedented in recent history. Obviously, that access is a good thing, but it also makes it possible to pick and choose the data to fit the case you want to make and difficult for people who are unfamiliar with stats and the topic to see what might be wrong with it. I saw countless examples of this during the pandemic. I've been guilty of it myself, though I've tried very hard not to be selective in what I amplify. Did you have that in mind when you wrote COVID by Numbers? Yeah, I think, I mean, we've written the book. It's not a polemic. You know, there, there's so many polemics. We've just had the select committee report, which is you know trying to blame people and trying to work out who did what wrong. And we're not trying to do any of that. You know, we're doing what we've been trying to do throughout the pandemic, which is kind of raise the level of the debate by countering misinformation, definitely. But, you know, really just trying to explain what's going on. I mean, that's all statisticians do. They just try to make some sense of what we've seen around us, what we're seeing around us now. Very wary about making any predictions. But, and that seems to be, there's a lot of demand for that, which is quite gratifying that, you know, people do seem to want a bit of clarity. We had a very nice review. Somebody said, oh, it's like having some adults in the room, <laughs> which I think is the nicest thing anyone's ever said about me. I, you know, feel, you know, I suffer you know, chronic imposter syndrome. So even being considered an adult, I regard as the biggest compliment I've almost ever received. Is there a misunderstanding or misapprehension that you found particularly frustrating during the pandemic, whether that's about the way statistics and data are interpreted, or whether it's about a way in which that misinterpretation has been amplified. Has there been something that, that's jumped out at you? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of stuff which we try to counter. I mean, one of the ones, it, it's just the most obvious thing, but it still really gets on my what's it. You know, when, you know the, we get the daily data coming out on the COVID dashboard. And, and actually, I would I would actually deny that it's Twitter that's really put data into the public sphere. It's it's things like the COVID dashboard, the the fact that the, the, there's a report at four o'clock every day. There's an update of number of cases, number of deaths that goes on the news. It's part of the news cycle, and I think that sort of perpetual daily update is what has kept the numbers 
in people's minds and has led to so much attention. And that's a good thing. These numbers are limited, the daily numbers. We know their limitations. We bang on about it for 18 months about how the number of deaths is not the number of people who have died the day before and that it's always low on Sundays and Mondays and it goes up on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And by Thursday, it might be a vaguely reliable figure. And yet still, you know, the media, uh, when are you when it's not the specialist journalist reporting, when it's a news journalist, will just sort of overinterpret those daily numbers. So they've just about learned after 18 months of getting it wrong. So um, that has always been a perpetual irritation, the um, taking the daily figures literally instead of a, a rough guide of what's been happening. So let's delve into some of the things you found. What did you find about how people's behaviour changed during the pandemic? Yeah, it's, it is quite remarkable because, you know, we're hearing now about concern right back at last March 2020 about how people would feel about, you know, restrictions on their liberties and things like that. And actually, of course, people have, as we just, we just have to look around us. We don't need stats to tell us that there's a massive change in behavior. And this happened, the other thing, it happened, you know, before you had to do it. The effect of lockdown started before lockdown started. Deaths peaked on April the 8th, and that's that's far too soon to be affected by uh, the, the official lockdown, which was on March the 23rd. That's only two weeks afterwards. And so people were voting with their feet, and they've continued to do so. On, and there's been a lot of you know, lockdown scepticism, of course, and people have got really fed up about it. But on the whole, there's been huge support, if not for even stronger measures, there's been popular support. For that. And so um, although, you know, obviously people who... Uh, don't wear masks and act irresponsibly, get some headlines. And there's been, we also report on the number of people who have actually sort of snitched on their neighbours, which is quite a lot, even though very few short fixed penalty notices have been, were given out about lockdown violations, only as many as a couple of days of traffic violations in terms of actual implementation of that law. So very few, very little, you know, enforcement in a sense. And the other thing, of course, which is a bit late to get in the book, is that, you know, there was anxiety after Freedom Day on July the 19th that everyone would rush out and embrace their freedom and all their friends and neighbours and send a great spike of cases. And, of course, none of this happened at all um, because people didn't change their behaviour very much. The the mixing data from a survey shows that there's almost no change after July the 19th. The big change is people going back to work. That's what produces the extra mixing and the extra risk. One of the interesting things about models, and I ran a piece by this at someone by someone at the LSE recently, is that it's very difficult to judge how effective, how how good a prediction they were, because people will change their behaviour based on the model. And as you point out, that is actually what happened once the modelling started coming out of Imperial College London, in particular, in March 2020. Yeah, it's been the nice comment that um, has been made. It's like trying to forecast the weather when carrying an umbrella makes it less likely to rain. So it, 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 you do get these feedback loops and things like that. I mean, I'm not a modeler. They've taken had a very high role, probably a bit, I think I would agree with the select committees on this, possibly a slightly too high a role, given their enormous unpredictability of the future and the huge ranges you know if you look at these models people will quote one number but in fact if you go back to the actual reports there's a staggering uncertainty they report about what might happen and that's of course all dependent on you know different scenarios and we don't know again what the behavior will be with so much we don't know that 
I'm a statistician rather than a model, and so I tend to just think about what's happening at the moment and what does that mean perhaps just for the next few weeks. I think that's about as far out as I ever would wish to consider. One of the reasons for that particularly bad first wave in the UK, I think, was the crisis in care homes where people were discharged from hospitals into care homes with COVID. And that's something which the Commons Select Committee report criticised a lot when it came out. You point out here, one of the points you make right at the end of the book is how little data we have on social care. Tell me a bit about how that has hampered your efforts to get an insight into what was going on. I mean, it's a running theme throughout healthcare statistics, and it's been recognised that COVID has just, just shone a strong light on how little we know about social care and about health, in a sense, outside hospitals, outside institutions. I feel there's a real, real gap in our knowledge about people's lives. But it was made even worse uh, at the start of the pandemic by the fact there wasn't any testing and that for quite reasonable reasons, doctors weren't going into care homes. And so actually, this is an example of where even if we look at death registrations, which are generally considered the gold standard in this country, are extremely good, um, it's almost certain that this was an undercount of COVID cases in the first wave. There was a a big excess in non-COVID deaths in the first wave, you know, particularly in older people in care homes. Now, these were COVID deaths. I don't think there's any doubt about this. It's just that patients, older people, vulnerable people were dying in care homes. There was a special dispensation that death certificates could be signed by a doctor who didn't even see the patient, and these patients weren't being tested because people weren't being tested. And so, quite understandably, there was some reluctance to assign someone as a COVID death when there was no direct evidence this was a COVID death. And so the actual number of COVID-related deaths was definitely an undercount, I think. I think we can be confident about that. The thing that bugs me, and which we, we talk about in the book a bit, is that one of the absolutely, I think, an extraordinary feature of, of this pandemic is... Uh, where people are dying. There's been an absolutely systematic change in the pattern of deaths in this country, and, and that includes Scotland and the other nations, that um, there's a sort of 30 40% increase in the number of people dying at home throughout the pandemic. And that even when there was no virus back particularly, and uh, very few of these deaths were COVID, people aren't going to hospital to die. And Scotland very nicely published every week, not only where people died, but also what they died of by place of death but in broad categorizations. And we can see from that that these are very much cancer and heart attacks and strokes and people with these severe conditions dying at home rather than in hospital. Whereas there's no actual excess in those numbers of deaths across the whole country, which suggests this is definitely a move of deaths, perhaps rather than additional deaths. So this change in practice, what's going on? You know, why is this? Well, people, I think people are reluctant to go to hospital, but also what's the quality of these deaths? I mean, you know, I think generally accepted that uh, most people would prefer to die at home, but how are the families coping? Are these people on their own? What's the end of life care like? Are they getting home support, the the morphine pumps, you know, everything that makes a death at home into what could be described as as positive experience as possible? I mean, something from my personal experience, I feel very strongly about the, um, the quality of deaths particularly at home. I think this is a a huge gap in our knowledge of care outside the institutions. 
the data here may surprise people. You've got one particularly fascinating table that estimates the impact that various interventions have had on the spread of COVID. And we can see, for example, that wearing a mask outdoors has a very low impact on transmission. And yet that is a step that has been mandated at times in some countries and is still common here, though, of course, not compulsory, not, not really recommended even. Now that we have a better idea of what interventions work, is there a case for revisiting, for updating advice, for making clear what we know about how COVID spreads now and how much more we know than we knew back in March 2020? Yeah, I think this is an important issue. You know, what, we, what we've just done is, because I, I think I found it, we found it really interesting, was put in a table that SAGE produced, you know, which summarised all the different things, closing churches, closing schools, wearing masks indoors, wearing masks outdoors, all these different stuff, the non-pharmaceutical interventions, and then said, you know, rank them by what they thought was their kind of impact. But also, and I, I really admire what SAGE have done on this, they give an assessment of the quality of the evidence. This is something, I, again, I feel really strongly about that. Because actually, the evidence for a lot of these things, the effectiveness isn't very good. There's all sorts of, it's very difficult to work out what the effects of face masks are in practice, compared with, say, the effectiveness of vaccines or drugs, which we can measure unbelievably accurately from randomized trials. And when we think of these things, our people's behavior and what they do, it's incredibly difficult to work out what effect they actually have, how important they are. And everyone knows that. But they, interestingly, Sage, when they talk about wearing face masks outdoors, they're very boldly said high confidence that there was a waste of time, essentially, which is really quite bold. They were really. And so that's why it's never been a recommendation. And that seems completely right when i see people wearing masks outdoors i can think now what are you doing this is really not the dominant point in this i think that though there is a general reluctance there has been a, a huge reluctance of people to admit that there has been a change in our knowledge i mean the classic one is the initial argument in this country and particularly by the who that this was spread through particles you know fomites whatever that and that surfaces were incredibly important wiping surfaces people are still wiping surfaces but it was you know i think you know accepted not that long afterwards that wasn't the main mode of transmission that it was aerosols it was people breathing over each other it could be behind you it could be um you know that this was this was the primary mode of transmission and that therefore uh, distance and masks and, and fresh air in particular and ventilation were the important aspects it took and you know, we got it in the book it, it took the who i think until march 2021 to kind of own up to this and start saying that it's fresh air was important. And hands, face, and space only changed to hands, face, and space, and fresh air, I think, in April 2021. Outrageously late. And I think that this is a real problem with overconfidence. There's something, again, in the Select Committee report that, that they um, identified. There was a huge overconfidence about what was the right thing to do. And I think people felt that, oh, we have to be confident. We have to say, this is what you must do. This is because of this. Instead of having some humility and, and saying that, well, this is the evidence at the moment. This is what we believe at the moment. We're going to make some recommendations, but they may change. These are provisional. Things may change as we learn more. This is because otherwise that people, politicians are terrified of this U-turn. God, I loathe the media when they start. You know, it's like playground chant, U-turn, U-turn. It's so absurd. And it just stops people making changes on the basis of new evidence. Um, but it's their fault, in a sense, for being so confident in the first place. And I always go back to 
my hero in all in all crises, risk communication, John Krebs, Lord Krebs, when he was head of the Food Standards Agency, had to deal with disaster after disaster, foot and mouth scrapey, chaos and disaster all around him. And he got very good at this, and he developed a whole sort of way of communicating about these things. But what he emphasized continually was, you know, saying what we do know, absolutely confident of what we do know, then immediately being what we don't know, being upfront about this, and then saying, well, this is what we recommend at the moment. This is what you can do, self-efficacy. But we will come back to you. We are learning and things might change. We have to be able to adapt. Chris Whitty, I think, is, you know, I watch him and he's been doing this right from the beginning. He's always been following this Krebs script. He's been doing it very well indeed. Excellent communication, I think. But it doesn't just doesn't suit the political way of saying where who have to, you know, we know this, we know that, this is what you should do, um, et cetera, et cetera. We're following the science. God, I hate that phrase. This was a real problem at the beginning, not having that humility to realize. I think they, they have learned. They have learned. Have you ever known of a situation where a government will say, this is our plan for the winter, and if it doesn't work, this is plan B? I, I think this is, is shows extraordinary maturity. doesn't seem to have caused enormous fuss and concern and anxiety in the population. It's just common sense to have a plan A, and then you have a plan B, and you tell people what the plan B is if, if what we're doing doesn't work, if, we, if things change. It also struck me about care home visits. You, uh, in the same table we were talking about, hospital and care home visits, it said have a low impact on transmission, and confidence in that is high. That I think there will be a number of people who read that and think, my God, you know, I was not allowed to visit my mother, you know, some other relative for over a year, and now this has emerged. And that I, I can imagine that being quite hard to deal with. But of course, at the time, it almost seemed as though the government could do nothing but completely cut off care homes from the surrounding community, with the exception of the workers going in and out, who of course were spreading the disease quite a lot. Briefly looking at test and trace, that was very heavily criticised for all kinds of reasons by the, in the committee report recently. But had it functioned better, supposing that it had been able to contact people fast enough, that it hadn't at times become overwhelmed, that the testing system itself hadn't become overwhelmed, do, what do we know about whether self-isolation works? Well, you know, obviously, if you can get people out, you know, of, of circulation, you, you can, you know, prevent them infecting people. But one of the moans we have in the book, one of the few sort of complaints we even so we try not to blame people, but we do have a go, just as the select committee does, on the fact that there's so much we don't, test and trace cost a fortune, and we don't know whether how much it's worked, you know, what its benefits have been. There's been some modelling or whatever, because there was an obsession about process, about doing things and how fast things was done, and that probably was important. But as far as we could see, there was no concern with actually evaluating what impact it was having. Statisticians would have immediately designed experiments and actually changed the policy in different parts of the country, perhaps, or, you know, had done separate surveys to find out what was going on and how many people were being infected. And so we've been blind on all this because there's an obsession with essentially operational statistics, how much stuff it's doing, rather than whether it's doing any good or not. You know, and as the select committee said, and of course, every, as far as I remember, everybody was saying at the time, why is it this huge monolithic centralized systems with people in call centers when there's enormous local knowledge and skills out there in public health teams who would normally do contact tracing and who were doing very successfully the contact tracing around made, you know, larger outbreaks. And so I think that the whole test and trace stuff is going to be is going to be something again that's going to is going to run and run in terms of scrutiny of whether this was really money well spent. 
Is there anything positive over the last 18 months that's given you heart about the way that we gather data and statistics and the way that we use them? Oh, good, yes. I mean, it's an awful thing to say, but this pandemic, if we have to think of you know, what are the good things that have come out of it, because I, I would say this, wouldn't I, because I'm a statistician and I've got a conflict of interest. I'm a non-executive director on the UK Statistics Authority that oversees the work of the Office for National Statistics and so on. So take what I say in, with, that, with that recognition. But statistics have been unbelievably important. The COVID dashboard, which is now excellent from PHE, Public Health England, I get millions of hits. You know, it's had 76 million hits or something like that in a week. It's quite extraordinary the amount of attention that's been to, to statistics, quite rightly. And the data journalism, okay, my positive takes out of it. The data journalism on the whole has been extremely good, I think. Right across the board and all on you know, a mainstream outlet. So obviously there's been some fringe stuff, but on the whole, it's been very good indeed. And the journalists have really done their best to explain what's going on with with, with the numbers. And they may really struggled. And, and some of the stuff's very difficult. You know, false positive rates of t- diagnostic tests, different definitions of deaths, vaccine effectiveness. These are really tricky. This is really tricky stuff that you know we struggle to explain. It's not just the collection of data, but the experiments done to evaluate medical treatments. The, the recovery trials. So it's data collected across the NHS. Britain just leads the world in this stuff because we've got this enormous platform of the NHS where we can recruit hundreds of hospitals, tens of thousands of patients very quickly that was set up and carry out multiple trials all at the same time. Get COVID in hospital, you might be in three, four clinical trials being randomly allocated treatments. And through that, we've been able to show, led the world in showing the benefits of some treatments like dexamethasone, which is estimated saved a million lives at cheap steroid, showing that hydroxychloroquine and convalescent plasma are not of great benefit and doing a particular benefit, Trump's favourite treatments and so on. And so, you know, this is immensely valuable. And the other, you know, thing, of course, is, is vaccines, which have been successful in terms of the science and the logistics. But also, you know, the data being available has been so important and has, you know, raised the game of, of you know, all the statisticians working in government and outside. So, I mean, I, again, I would say this, wouldn't I? But as a statistician, I, <laughs> when I was president of the Royal Statistical Society, we spent ages on committees and forming working groups. And how can we get statistics taken more seriously in the country? How can we get civil servants and politicians to really engage with statistics, the public, the media? And we racked our brains and we had campaigns. And, well, you know, we could have just sat around and waited for this pandemic to start because it's done all the work for us, both in terms of the media attention the public attention and what I think was really heartening is the increased attention within government and that's both in senior civil servants and politicians and as part of the um, setting up of the data masterclass that was set up by number 10 has got his own data science unit excellent group and they set up a, a data masterclass for senior civil servants and politicians and they've been they've been doing it and, and apparently it's been going down very well. You know, I make an appearance, and other people do. Hannah Fry, and, you know, they, they roped us all in. I went down to number 10 to film. That was cool. And now that's been taken over by the Office of National Statistics, and I hope will grow and grow because it's something this pandemic has shown that within government and that's civil service and politics, we just need a bigger awareness of data. It doesn't mean necessarily that people have to be able to do the analysis. It doesn't mean, mean they necessarily have to be scientists. They should, though, have an appreciation of what we can learn from data, 
and what we can't. So how absolutely important it is, but it's still not going to tell us what to do. Now, like war, COVID is a terrible thing, but it can spur some remarkable technological innovation. Yeah, yeah. What has shown as well, of course, I would say this, wouldn't I, is how people have, obviously, there's been enormous agility, for example, within the vaccine task force. But even with the, you know, people working for the government, set up the COVID infection survey in a matter of weeks in April, when they were finally asked to do it in April the 17th. And they had, by the end of April, we're starting to get an idea of how many people in the country actually had the virus, which we haven't got a clue before. And that's carried on, been enormously successful, told us so much about vaccines and, and, you know, immunity and so on. It is quite extraordinary that that basic idea of, well, let's just go out and get recruit tens of thousands of people and measure them every week or two, just what that has provided in terms of information. Thanks so much for talking to us, David. Thank you very much for having me, letting me rant on. COVID by Numbers is published by Pelican Books, and it's a particularly elegant edition if you can get your hands on one. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you did, you can help us to reach more people by forwarding the episode link to three friends or tweet it to them with the hashtag BunkerUp. Get them to send us their feedback. It's really useful. If you enjoy The Bunker, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>